Previously on Flying the Line, the Bildisco decision, although temporary in its precedence, seals the Continental Pilot's fate. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. Alpa supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Flight Finder, located in the Alpa app. Flight Finder is the most comprehensive resource for jump seat today, providing real-time access and availability for your commute to or from work. Download the app at alpaorg apps or in your smart device's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 14. The Continental Strike, Alpa's Dark Night of the Soul, Part 3. Seth Rosen, then director of Alpa's representation department, recalled that in hindsight, it was easy to see that once Bill Disco came down, the appeals process wasn't going to be a viable option. In his mind, it would have been better to call off the strike because it was a total victory in busting the Union. Continental had no desire to negotiate at that point. A huge block of 300 Continental strikers crossed the picket line immediately after Bill Disco. They had held their lines with virtually no crossovers for nearly five months, but Lorenzo had a large contingent of new hires nearing the end of training, and something approaching panic set in as these post-Bill Disco crossovers saw their jobs disappear forever. Among the 600 crossovers during the strike, there was a vast difference between those who made this decision post-Bill Disco and the others from October, whose early betrayal was so crucial. Former Alpha LEC member Captain Jim Miner, who supported the strike for six months, said that returning to work for Frank Lorenzo, the individual who had ruined his career, was the single most traumatic event of his life, which had already included two divorces. However, the pilots were told that the airline didn't have the legal right to void the pilot contract. Well, the courts saw things differently. By June 1984, an accumulation of adverse court decisions meant that ALPA would, realistically, have to pull down the continental strike on unsatisfactory grounds at some point. Although the diehard continental strikers continued to do their utmost, the only effective means at their disposal was the deeply abhorrent one of making total war on the airline itself. By pressuring travel agents not to sell Continental tickets, the striking pilots stood to destroy the very airline they had spent their careers building. So Alpa would have to retreat. But until a way could be found, Continental strikers would soldier on. Alpa's corporate campaign designed to pressure Lorenzo both morally and financially through pleas to lenders and vendors, found little support among Lorenzo's fellow CEOs. The 1980s, with the Reagan Revolution at the peak of its popularity, proved unreceptive to concepts like fairness and corporate responsibility. 
ALPA's challenge to the safety of Continental's strike operation was another matter. With an inexperienced pilot workforce, incidents multiplied. By December 1983, ALPA had already documented almost daily infractions, ranging from busted altitude assignments to inadequate crew rest. On November 9, 1983, a DC-9 with Lorenzo himself aboard landed on a taxiway in Denver. In February 1984, a hard landing resulted in aircraft damage that went unreported until non-continental ground personnel finally noticed the wrinkled exterior. Meanwhile, the aircraft continued in line operations for three days. ALPA tried mightily to interest the news media and the FAA in these safety violations. In April 1984, CBS's 60 Minutes ran a program on them, but the FAA regarded these charges as merely union stuff and resisted becoming involved. Expressing deep frustration with FAA Administrator Donald Engen, Hank Duffy told congressional investigators in June 1984 that federal officials were ignoring ALPA's reports of safety violations and actively favoring Lorenzo. In one mid-air near-miss incident, ALPA's Director of Accident Investigation provided the FAA with air traffic control tapes that the FAA later erased. Engen claimed it was just an inadvertently hasty recycling of tapes. In June 1984, Hank Duffy presented congressional investigators with a list of 152 similar safety violations committed by Continental during the strike and cited the FAA as a classic example of an agency that either can't or won't do its job. Stung by congressional criticism following ALPA's complaints, the FAA launched an investigation of Continental, which ultimately cleared it. Engen publicly reported that Continental continued to provide safe service. One small episode during the strike deserves mentioning. Under the leadership of Paul Eckel, the Continental management pilot who tried to prevent Lorenzo's takeover with an employee stock ownership plan, a group of striking Continental pilots started their own airline, Pride Air, to compete on selected routes with Continental. Pride Air was vaguely reminiscent of the Southern Airways pilots' 1961 attempt to fly their own strike airline, which they called Superior Airlines. The difference between the two airlines, Superior and Pride, was that ALPA became financially involved in Superior, whereas Pride's funding came mostly out of the Continental pilots' own pockets, primarily from their pensions. Superior was a financial quagmire that taught ALPA a lesson. The Continental pilots who invested in Pride should have paid attention to history. They lost everything. How, then, did the strike finally end? Lorenzo had won all the economic and legal battles to this point and had no incentive to negotiate. Only the bankruptcy court's order that he do so perpetuated pointless negotiations. Seth Rosen remembered that a member of the management team told him that they weren't here to do anything but play games. He added that if Rosen repeated his remarks as a matter of record, he would simply deny them. 
By August 1985, Continental had a full complement of 1,600 pilots, 1,000 permanent replacements hired after the strike began, and 600 who had crossed picket lines, giving the carrier its full pre-strike strength. About 1,000 ALPA loyalists remained on strike, with approximately 400 others either having found jobs elsewhere or retired. Their last connection with Continental was the pre-strike ALPA contract, which still retained legal standing in the bankruptcy court. Then, Lorenzo outsmarted himself. On August 26, 1985, Lorenzo moved to terminate the ALPA contract. Declaring that Continental's original acceptance of ALPA as the collective bargaining agent was voluntary and had never been certified by a formal vote, Lorenzo announced that he was withdrawing this recognition. With 1,400 of his pilots having signed a petition requesting it, Lorenzo declared that a majority of all his pilots, even if the 1,000 strikers were included in the total, favored decertification of ALPA. He then broke off the court-ordered negotiations. At this point, cocky and overconfident, riding the crest of dozens of puff pieces in the press describing him as the wonder boy who took on the unions and won, and the man who proved deregulation would work, Lorenzo faltered. Notwithstanding that Bob Six had voluntarily accepted Alba as the pilot's bargaining agent back in 1942, Lorenzo could not unilaterally withdraw that recognition. Established precedent in NLRB case law required a formal supervised ballot, not the informal ballot Lorenzo announced. Having canceled the wage and working conditions portion of the ALPA contract, Lorenzo figured the bankruptcy court would now permit total cancellation of the entire contract under the same rationale and without going through the formal decertification process. Without waiting for the bankruptcy court to rule on his high-handed action, Lorenzo announced an expansion of Continental's flight schedule. Ironically, Lorenzo had been so successful at breaking the strike that he now needed more pilots. On September 9, 1985, Thinking Alpa's legal challenge to his decertification would fail, Lorenzo announced a vacancy bid for nearly 500 captain and first officer positions, plus the hiring of an undetermined number of second officers off the street. Lorenzo believed his decertification of Alpa meant that striking pilots would have no standing to bid for these positions. One final crisis now loomed for the Continental MEC. While ALPA tried to persuade the bankruptcy court of the illegality of Lorenzo's decertification, the leaders of Continental's pilot group, encouraged by ALPA's outside legal counsel, agreed to submit bids for these new, vacant pilot positions. Lorenzo promptly filed a petition with the court stating that the strikers were not entitled to any of the bid vacancies under any circumstances, because all of them had already been awarded two permanent replacements. The federal bankruptcy court thought otherwise. On October 31, 1985, Judge Roberts entered an order and award of the bankruptcy court imposing a settlement on Lorenzo. 
often denounced as the Surrender Agreement by militant continental strikers, the order and award was, in fact, far better. Judge Roberts required that Lorenzo offer his pilots three options, ranging from reinstatement in order of seniority, according to a complicated formula, to severance pay of $4,000 for each year of service. Pilots who wished to retain their right to litigate further would also be reinstated, but only after all pilots who waived that right. Although not all former Continental captains moved immediately into the left seat, Lorenzo had to guarantee a substantial number of them captain's pay anyway. Within a year of the order and award, most Continental strikers were back on their flight decks, but not all. From the beginning, Lorenzo privately made it clear that he would never accept pilots who had played a leadership role in the strike. Post-strike harassment is nothing new in Alba's history, but the subtlety of Lorenzo's campaign set a new standard. His primary weapon was the polygraph machine, or lie detector, a device premised upon the unscientific notion that lying triggers certain physiological changes. Lorenzo used them on continental strike leaders in conjunction with legal depositions designed to ferret out knowledge of illegal acts committed during the strike. Although not admissible as evidence during a trial, the Texas Bankruptcy Court permitted Lorenzo to use them internally, a decision Alpa challenged unsuccessfully. Armed with polygraph results, Lorenzo set out to make life difficult for Continental strike leaders during requalification. There were about a dozen individuals who were very active, vocal, and visible during the strike that the company didn't want back under any circumstances. One by one, the principal strike leaders, when questioned later about post-strike harassment, asked to go off record. They couldn't prove what they said, and they knew how litigious Lorenzo could still be, so they chose their words carefully. In every instance, they insisted that they were privately warned by old friends in management not to come back, that they would never make it through training. Save yourself the trouble, they were told. Take option three, the $4,000 per year severance pay, and run. Most did. Finally, one sad footnote. A few Continental strikers retained their right to sue under the order and award. A flurry of lawsuits resulted, and Lorenzo won every single case. In their despair, they turned on Alba itself, filing a failure-of-duty-of-fair-representation lawsuit, which alleged that Alba's acceptance of the order and award was a betrayal. In early 1991, the U.S. Supreme Court threw out their lawsuit and exonerated Alpa. The Continental Strike was finally over. Next time on Flying the Line, an unlikely connection between United CEO and the pilot's MEC chair leads to a controversial contract proposal. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 14, Part 3 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. 
We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023. All rights reserved.